have a word of prayer. Lord God, we Lord, we pray that you give us eyes of faith, ears that hear. Lord, we know that the flesh profits nothing, and we are utterly dependent on your spirit to implant your word into our hearts. And Lord, we pray that as we look to your word, as we look to your son and his birth, with eyes of faith that we would behold glory, that you would give us a bigger vision of your love and a larger understanding of your grace and a broader grasp of your amazing plan and purpose for us through your Son. Lord, we, we want to see the Lord Jesus high and lifted up. And we want to love him and we want to worship. And we are utterly dependent upon your word and your spirit to make that happen. So we pray that you would unite our hearts to fear your name. Open our eyes to behold wondrous things from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You would open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2, and you can um, insert, I'll sort of follow some of the thought along. And Hebrews chapter 2 may seem like a strange text from which to speak on Christmas morning about the birth of Jesus. And yet I hope and trust that as we look at it, that it will become clear that there's a lot to understanding this. And let me say up front, the mystery of the incarnation is profound. To really grasp what the scriptures say about it, to speak about it, to meditate on it is far too broad of a task for our time this morning. So I gave this analogy last night, like a multifaceted diamond. This text is going to help us to look at one of the facets of that diamond. Um, Asking the question specifically, why was it necessary for Jesus to become human? Why must it have been that way? What depends upon it? What is at stake in Jesus taking on flesh? Let's read Hebrews chapter 2. Verse 14 to 18. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And there it is in verse 17. In my translation, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Why is that? Why was the incarnation necessary? Why could our salvation not be accomplished without it? Why did it have to be that way? That may be a strange question to ask because currently in our culture, most people are quite willing to accept the humanity of Jesus 
It's the deity of Jesus. It's the authority of Jesus. It's the godhood of Jesus that offends. Interestingly enough, in the first century, the earliest error, the earliest heresy about the person of Jesus, and there's even some evidences in 1 John of it already showing up, was the exact opposite. It was a denial of the humanity. Um, I think the term for it was Gnosticism from his knowledge, secret inside knowledge. And, and basically, the concept went something like this. How could the eternal, immutable, unchanging, all-powerful, all-knowing, perfect, unstained God enter into this world and really become a person, really. And they could accept that Jesus looked human and acted human, and if you touched him, he would have felt human, but they would have really buckled at the notion that he really was human. And again, our text emphasizes that Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect. And that's why in, in, in 1 John chapter 4 verses, if you want to turn there, 1 John chapter 4 Verses 1 to 3, he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for, every, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. So already, the writing of 1 John, there is this beginning seed form denial of the humanity of Jesus, the real humanity of Jesus. And even in Christian circles, this can sort of happen. Um, if you have a vision of Jesus walking around kind of like Superman with under his shirt, you know, dun da da And so whenever Jesus does things like survive temptation or fast or stay up praying all night, you say, well, sure, but he, he was God, so it was, I'm sure it's pretty easy for him. If that's your understanding of Jesus, you've got sort of the Superman approach. He looks human, but under, under the shirt, dun, 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 he's Superman Jesus. I had a professor in, in, in seminary who said that we run the risk of deifying his humanity and humanizing his deity. We end up with a, a human who's really got superpowers and a God who's very human and somebody ultimately who we aren't very tempted to worship, adore, or be in awe of. So again, I think this is a helpful question to ask as we do our study this morning in our time. And I think it helps to start by thinking about Jesus before the incarnation. Keep, keep your thumb here. We're going to spend our time here this morning. But go back to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. In very familiar words, John opens his Gospel saying the following. Where was Jesus before the incarnation? What was he doing? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was God. And the Word was with God. He was in the beginning with God. So that's, that's where Jesus was. He was God, and he was with God in the beginning. What did he do in the beginning? All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then jump down to verse 9. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. 
That's the incarnation. That's one of the reasons we have a candlelight Christmas Eve service. Because John uses this imagery of the incarnation, of the birth of Jesus as light coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And then verse 14, this amazing statement. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, literally pitched his tent among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So before the incarnation, the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are in, are in wonderful fellowship that we cannot grasp and understand. And there was no lack, there was no deficiency in that fellowship that caused them to create this universe. Rather, the, the universe as we know it, I like the way John Piper says it, is, is the glory of God gone public. It's, it's, it's no sign of the deficiency of a fountain that it overflows. And so the joy and the love and the trinity overflows and they create this world, this good world. And we learn in John that Jesus was the one ultimately who did the creating. So Jesus was active, he shared glory, he shared a relationship with the Father, he was perfectly happy. And then he enters into the womb of a small Jewish peasant, and for the first time in all of eternity, experiences pain, discomfort, humiliation. The one who all things are dependent upon. The one who made all things becomes completely dependent upon his mother to change his clothes and to feed him. Becomes a helpless babe. And, and Jesus is well aware of this. Turn over to John 17. We don't grasp how far down Jesus stepped when he became a man. But just before Jesus goes to the cross, when he gets alone to pray to his father in John 17, this is his prayer in verse 5. This is his longing. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus is on earth and he's facing death. And one of the things that keeps him going, one of the things he is looking to is that glory that he had with the Father before the world existed. So it's a big deal for Jesus to become human. He sets aside his rights. He sets aside his privileges. And so our text this morning tries to answer, why is that such a big deal? Why would he do this? Why was it so important? So back to Hebrews chapter 2. Try to give this answer in, in four points from the passage. 
Why was it necessary for Jesus to become human? Number one, to fully identify with his people. To fully identify with his people. We see that in verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he likewise partook of the same things. Jesus is identifying with us in his incarnation. He is becoming like us. The people that he represents, the people that he will call brothers, the people whom he will bring to God, he first identifies with them. He becomes like them. In fact, the second point, A, you must become like what you want to save. You must become like what you want to save. Listen to Paul speak of his own missionary philosophy in in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that I, by all means, might save some. I do it for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Where do you think Paul learned this strategy? Learned it from Jesus, who became like us. He didn't demand that we rise to his level. He stepped down to our level. He identified with us. He entered into our sufferings. He entered into our experience. He entered into our world as one of us, as a man. Not only as a man, but as a man. And he identifies with his people. He identifies with us. And we need to see in this passage that Jesus became fully and truly human. Fully and truly human. We, we, we got to grasp this. He really became human. And there's some mysteries here that I, I can't fully unpack. How is it that the God who never sleeps, I mean, go to the Psalms. Your God never sleeps. His eye is on you. Is asleep in the boat in Galilee, on, in the middle of the ocean, in the sea. How is that? The God who says he is never hungry or weary is tired and sends his disciples in John 4 to go buy some food. How can this be? There's, there's a mystery here, but it's not theater. Please don't think Jesus really wasn't sleeping and he really wasn't hungry. It's just an act. He became like his brothers in every respect. Every respect. Luke 2.52 makes another very hard to compute statement. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man, which to me sounds an awful lot like he learned things. Again, I just sort of worship and I try to put that together with the unchangeable God who knows everything and Jesus grew in wisdom. But again, whatever it is, it's not theater. It's, It's not an act. It's not for show. It's real. And, and I don't claim to understand how fully a person who is God can become fully human, but, but these statements from Scripture are true. Or turn over a page to Hebrews 5, 8. 
Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. He learned obedience. Scripture is comfortable using language that, quite frankly, makes me uncomfortable. And it's because while the scriptures affirm the full deity of Jesus, they're quite comfortable affirming the full humanity of him. And so somehow these, these things coexist, but he, he became fully human. He fully identified with us. It wasn't an act. It, it, it wasn't for show. He really became human, and he will always remain human. He will always be the God-man. Resurrected, glorified God-man, but the God-man. He became like us in every respect. Why else was it necessary for Jesus to be human? Well, surprisingly, the text gives us another answer, which is to die. To die, and in doing so, destroy both death and the devil. Jesus became human and was born so that he could die. God cannot die. Later on in Hebrews, we'll see, talking about Jesus having an eternal or infinite life. And only by becoming human could Jesus be open to the possibility of dying. And even then, Jesus says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord for the life of the sheep. And so if Jesus is going to die for his people... Well, he would need to become human in order to die. And that's what the text says. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. So why did he partake in flesh and blood? To die. And in doing so, kill death and the devil. So that Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 can speak of death being swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? And we all, as Jesus says, have life within us who know him and love him. And we will never perish, but have eternal life. Because of his death, death died. And we have life. But that all again hinges on the incarnation. Why was it necessary for him to become human? To identify with his people. And so that he could die Thirdly, um, in, in verse 17, we read, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. And this is really the point the author of Hebrews is going to run with for the next couple chapters. He needed to become fully human so that he could become a great high priest. Jesus couldn't be apparently, according to this text, our high priest, without being fully human. And so I, I don't know if you woke up this morning thinking, man, I need a high priest, but you do. <laughs> we all do. I don't know if you know that, but one of your greatest needs is a high priest. I, I don't know if anyone's ever done evangelism that way. Are you looking for a high priest? Because I got one. Um, but it's true. It's absolutely true. And part of that is because we don't really understand the concept of priesthood. If, if we've had any exposure to it, it's usually through Roman Catholicism. But the Bible sets up a priesthood in the Old Testament. Um, and it's meant to prepare us for 
these concepts, these categories of priesthood. So what is a priest fundamentally at its fundamental level? A priest stands between men and God on behalf of men. This is probably the easiest way to think of the difference between priest and prophet who, who serve similar but opposite purposes. If, if here's the people and here's God, the prophet speaks to people for God. So God tells Moses, go tell them this. God tells Ezekiel, go tell them that. And the prophet positions himself between God and the people, speaking to the people for God, right? The priest does the exact opposite. The priest puts himself in between the people and God on behalf of the people talking and dealing with God. So the priest would go into the temple once a year on the Day of Atonement and offer a sacrifice for the sins of the people. He would approach God in the Holy of Holies, and there, for the people, he would offer a sacrifice. The priest stands between men and God on behalf of men. And again, this may not fully be intuitive because in today's culture, if we think of God as anything, we think of him as sort of this lovable teddy bear. We wouldn't think that we need a go-between. We wouldn't think that we dare not approach him. But again, if you're reading your Old Testament, the setup is clear. I mean, think about it. There's an entire priest class, the Levites. And of that priest class, only one of them is the high priest. And of that high priest, on only one day of the year, for a few minutes, is he allowed to enter the Holy of Holies. And even then, it's after doing a sacrifice and with all sorts of offerings. And, and you get the picture. To approach God is serious business. And you better be prepared, and you better be qualified, and you better not just be anyone trying to do it. Aaron's own sons just gave some worship, gave some offerings in an offhand way, and God struck them dead in Leviticus. And so turn to Exodus. I'll try to give you a picture of this, this notion of priesthood, where it sort of first comes out and emerges. Exodus 20, where the Ten Commandments are given. Because no other book in the New Testament really deals with the priesthood of Jesus than the book of Hebrews. And so it's not, again, surprising if you haven't done a lot of study of Hebrews lately that this notion of priesthood um, might be a little foreign. Exodus chapter 20. And, and the situation is this. A couple million Israelites are encamped around Mount Sinai. God is meeting with them. God is going to enter into a covenant with them. And he begins to speak. And the people are terrified. And in verse 18, we read, Now when the people all saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, Speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Now there, they're specifically talking about, you speak to us for God. You be the prophet. But just a couple chapters later, when they offer sacrifices to the golden calf, what does Moses do? He begins interceding for the people on their behalf. And so in this context, the people are terrified of approaching God. They don't want 
an unmediated relationship with God. And, and believe me, neither do you. <laughs> neither do I. We need a go-between. We need someone to stand in the middle. We need someone to bridge the gap. Or turn to the book of Job for a very profound and insightful way of, of stating this problem. Book of Job, chapter 9. Job, chapter 9. Job 9. And in the situation, Job is, is perplexed at his suffering. His friends are telling him, Job, you must have done something wrong. God wouldn't be uh, letting this happen to you if you didn't have some secret sin in your life. And Job kind of wants to make his defense, and he kind of wants to say to God, explain yourself. And he knows he can't say that to God. And so he speaks this way in verse 32 and 33. He is not a man as I am that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. Think about that. Job is saying, I can't approach God with my concerns. He's a consuming fire. I, I, I can't go to God and say, hey God, what's going on? I need somebody who can, who can mediate between us someone who can lay a hand on us both. And Jesus' incarnation is taking on flesh is precisely how he becomes able to lay a hand on us both, to bridge the gap between man and God. I mean, think about that. He can fully identify with, as a man for men, and as God with God. And the incarnation hinges upon it. That's why he couldn't be a great high priest interceding for these people, standing between these people without being one of these people. It's an amazing truth what Jesus did so that he could stand for us. And so simultaneously we have a mediator between us and God who is himself God. And so we can deal directly with God, but not the fiery, shaking mountain, but the God-man, who, as we'll see later, we are told to boldly approach. Not like those Israelites who trembled and quaked at the mountain, but we're going to see just a little bit that we are told to boldly approach God precisely because we have this type of priest. And all of this turns on the Incarnation. No incarnation, no humanity, no priesthood, no priesthood, no drawing near to God. He had to be like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. So priests, what do they do? He's a priest. Priests, I think, fundamentally do two things for the people. Turn to Hebrews chapter 7. We'll see both of them. First, to make intercession on our behalf. Why do you need Jesus to be your priest? Why do I need Jesus to be my priest? To make intercession, to intercede, to plead my cause on my behalf. And again, this, this may be a foreign notion if the picture of God you have is sort of the heavenly grandfather, the jovial old fellow who hopes we're all having a good time. But the holy, righteous, terrifying God of the Bible in all of his beauty and love and holiness and greatness is, is 
is not quite that teddy bear. Or as C.S. Lewis would say, he's not a tame lion. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23 to 25, talking about Jesus' priesthood in comparison to the priesthood of Levi. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. See, they're all sinners, so they all died, ultimately. So you keep needing more priests. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. Isn't, isn't that good language? Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Why? Since he always lives to make intercession for them. What is Jesus doing right now at this very moment? He is interceding on our behalf. He always lives to do that. And this concept of saving to the uttermost means that not only does Jesus procure a pardon for sin, but he doesn't just leave you there. Okay, you're forgiven. I'll see you in 30 years. But constantly through your life, he is shepherding you. Constantly through your life, he is saving you. The New Testament will speak of salvation in a past, present, and future sense. And when it speaks about saving currently, it's talking about sanctifying. You've been forgiven if you're in Christ, but he's not done saving you. He will continue to save you by sanctifying you. And then Romans 13 will talk about the day of our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed, because he will glorify you. And right now, Jesus' sin-bearing on the cross is done. He's not saving you like that anymore. He's not bearing your sins. He's not making a way of forgiveness. But he is not done bringing you to God. He has not left you alone. He is ever living to intercede on your behalf before the throne of God. And that is a tremendously encouraging thing because when you or I sin or on faithful doubt, and we sort of feel like that dog who's got this tail between his legs and trying to hide behind the couch. You have a great high priest who is ever living to intercede on your behalf. The second thing priests do, they offer sacrifices. And so Jesus' priesthood is to offer himself as a sacrifice for sins. And we'll just read a little further in Hebrews 7. For it was indeed fitting, verse 26, that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, who has no need like those priests to offer sacrifices daily first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. The point being that the Levitic priests, before they'd ever approached God, first had to deal with their own sins. Before the priests in the order of Levi could ever do anything for anybody else, they first had to deal with their own sin. The, the program is very specific. Before the high priest approaches the Holy of Holies, he first deals with his own sin. Then and only then can he begin to try to deal with the sins of the people. Jesus didn't need to deal with his sin because he was without sin. And so he says, or first for his own sins, then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. And here's another mystery priests offer up sacrifices, but Jesus is the priest offering up the sacrifice. But what is the sacrifice that Jesus offers up? Himself. So Jesus is the priest offering the sacrifice, and he is also the sacrifice. I mean, isn't that amazing? 
If you read a little later in Hebrews, you'll also see the altar the sacrifice is offered on. I mean, it gets kind of complicated. Um, but Jesus is a priest offering up himself. And because of who he is, the sacrifice that he makes is once for all. And that, again, turns on his humanity. If you want someone to stand in your stead, if you want someone to be your, um, your, that's not the right word. If you want someone to be your representative in court, if you want someone to pay your penalty, your substitute, there we go. If you want someone to be your substitute, they need to be like you. Jesus cannot pay the penalty for men if he is not a man. Go back to the logic of, of um, verse of Hebrews 2, verse 16. For surely it is not angels that he helps. The logic is he became like a man to help men. He, he didn't become like an angel to help angels. But he helps the offspring of Abraham, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. If he's going to be a sacrifice for sins, he needs to become in that category of who he's going to offer sins sacrificed for. And he becomes human so that he can die for humans. He becomes a man so that he can stand in the place of men. He becomes a man so he can receive a man's punishment for a man's sins. And the incarnation is what enables that to be true. He had to be made like us in every respect to offer himself as a sacrifice for sins, literally to put away sins. Why did Jesus, why was it necessary for him to be humiliated, becoming a helpless baby, to set aside his glory and his privilege, his majesty? Well, it's the only way he could offer a sacrifice for sins that would be acceptable for us. That's why it's important. And that's why John and 1 John can say whoever denies the incarnation is of the spirit of the Antichrist. Because you get no incarnation. You've got no identifying with the people. You've got no ability to die. You've got no priesthood. You've got no intercession. You've got no sacrifice. Which means you've got no gospel. The incarnation is hugely important. And fourthly, and I think most comfortingly, and I'm happy to end here. He became human. It was necessary for Jesus to become fully human, to truly be able to sympathize with us and help us. To truly be able to sympathize with us and help us. Back in Hebrews 2, just looking at the uh, last verse. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. You know, again, these things can be difficult to grasp. God knows everything, right? Amen? Okay, God knows it. We'll try that again. God knows everything. There we go. And yet, in some sense... It's hard to fathom how God knew the experience of suffering, how God knew the experience of hunger, thirst, pain, until Jesus became man. Um, and, and, and I won't push that too far, but there is something that experiential in that knowledge that the incarnation brings to us. And the author of Hebrews is saying, because of that, understand this, he can sympathize with us. 
You know, maybe, maybe you're thinking you're high priest. And, and this, again, is not something we wrestle with, but if you were a first century Jew, you might, be, you might know some high priests, and they might be highfalutin people who wanted nothing to do with you, the hoi polloi. They might cross the street, so they walk down the other side opposite you. Remember the story of the Good Samaritan? Who walked by the Samaritan? Well, a priest did. And so it, it might be possible that they didn't view priests as particularly sympathetic people. Priest wouldn't want to dirty himself and come down and deal with me. And what about a priest who is God? I mean, that priest, he's going to be really hard to approach. And then we're back to the same problem we began with. Someone we're terrified of approaching. And so the author of Hebrews says, no, no, no. He suffered through the things you suffered through. He, he was tested and tempted like you were. He can sympathize. He can give help. I was reading Calvin's commentary, and he cited Virgil on this point. This is a wonderful statement. The Son of God had no need to experience that he might know the emotions of mercy. But we could not be persuaded that he is merciful and ready to help us had he not become acquainted by experience with our miseries. I'll say that again. He did not need the experience to know the emotion of mercy. But we could not be persuaded that he is merciful and ready to help us had he not become acquainted with our experience, with our miseries. Therefore, whenever any evil passes over us, let it ever occur to us that nothing happens to us but what the Son of God himself has already experienced in order that he might sympathize with us, nor let us doubt that he is present with us through the sufferings we have Whenever we're going through a trial, whenever we're going through suffering, he's saying, remember that Jesus has gone through those same things. You're not alone. And when you approach God, you're not approaching a God who's, who thinks, why on earth are you struggling with that? Why on earth are you tired and weary and complaining? And, but one who's been there and understands how hard things can be. No, no he never sinned. No, he never complained. But oh, he knows how circumstances might provoke us to that. Oh, he knows how tired and weary, how much pain this world has. He knows that. And he makes two points. And the first is, he suffered and can therefore help us in our sufferings. He suffered and can therefore help us in our sufferings. And really, there's two categories of trials, right? There's suffering and there's temptation. And he puts both of them out there. And so maybe you're suffering. Maybe you're suffering physically, disease or illness. Jesus suffered physically. He can help. Maybe you're suffering emotionally. Maybe you're suffering financially. Maybe there's all sorts of ways you can be suffering. And the point is this, Jesus suffered too. He can help. He can sympathize. Or maybe you're suffering through temptation battling sin, discouraged. Now, it's a little different here because Jesus was made like us in every respect except without sin, but the scripture again is emphatically clear. He was tempted. He never sinned, but he was tempted. The devil tempted him in the wilderness. And it's interesting that Jesus' temptation is the polar opposite of ours. When I'm tempted, sin in me cries out for something that I should not have. 
When Jesus is sweating like great drops of blood in the garden, holiness within him is crying out against the thought of being covered with sin. But he was tempted. And the things that Satan offered him really were appealing to him. Does Jesus desire praise and honor and glory? Yes, he does. Satan just offered him a shortcut. No cross. You can have all the nations of this world worship and honor you, which is something Jesus desires and something he will have. Instead of the cross, just worship me. Jesus had been without food. He tempted him with bread. Was he hungry? I'm sure he was. These are just some examples of Jesus' real temptation. Not sin within him battling, but these real desires for good things. And primarily Jesus' temptations, as I understand them, are the desires for good things offered in a bad way. You can have this good thing without going to the cross. And so he can sympathize with us in our temptations. No, he never gave in to temptation. No, he never sinned. But when we're tempted, do not be afraid that Jesus is somehow going to look at you and be like, Dave, this is the fifth time this week that you've been struggling with that. Seriously? What's wrong with you? I feel that way sometimes. When I'm going to God for the 13th time in a single day to confess that I haven't been a very good husband and I haven't been preferring my wife. And I'm tempted to think that my great high priest is kind of saying, seriously? Come on now, this is getting ridiculous. Um, and we're, we are encouraged not to think that way. To close, turn to chapter four, where these themes really get brought together in their most glorious, glorious way. This is one of my absolute favorite passages in the Bible. I get so much encouragement and hope from this passage. And again, it all hinges on the incarnation. This passage would be meaningless without the incarnation, without Jesus' humanity. And because Jesus became fully human, we can read things like this. Hebrews 4, 14 to the end. Since then we have a great high priest. We do indeed. Who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Why? For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Now there's a double negative there. Let's just put it positive. If we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize, what do we have? If you don't have a high priest who can't sympathize, there's the double negative. If you do not, he cannot. Make it positive. We do have a high priest who can sympathize. You see that? We don't have a high priest who can't sympathize. Vis-a-vis, we do have a high priest who can sympathize with us in our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Every respect. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The logic is this. We do have a high priest. Not one who can't sympathize with us. Not one who doesn't know what it's like to walk in this world, who we might be tempted to be afraid of, but rather one, he says, who is tempted like us in every respect, and based on that, boldly approach God's throne. Based on his sympathy and similar experience, based on the fact that he suffered, based on the fact that he was tempted, based on the fact that he experienced these same things. Boldly approach God's throne.
throne. When in time of need and help, which I want to make one more point here. If you're like me, there's a little bit of works righteousness that still clings around in your heart, and it looks something like this. The days when I'm boldest to approach God are the days where I feel like I've been a good boy. Did my devotions, I read my Bible, maybe I gave someone some encouragement, and so yeah, I'll, I'll boldly approach God's throne today. Here I am, God, with all my righteousness, like filthy rags. And the days where I didn't read my Bible, and I didn't pray, and maybe I was rude to my wife and 15 times, and maybe, just, just, just for a matter of uh, an illustration. Um, <laughs> on those days, I'm not nearly as bold, kind of hiding out in the corner, and part of me is tempted to think, you know, why don't I get a day or two of reading my Bible under my belt before I start boldly approaching? Now, here's my question. Which day do I need more help? Which day do I need more help? Both. But certainly the day where I'm struggling with sin, right? So the writer of Hebrews here tells us to boldly approach the throne of grace to find help when? In time of need. Precisely the time when I'm tempted to scurry away with my tail between my legs is precisely the time that I'm told to boldly approach God's throne. And the, the argument, the reason given for why that should be so is that my high priest sympathizes. He's been there. He's suffered. Do you, do you see how much weight hangs upon this truth of the incarnation? Do you see how much theological capital the writer of Hebrews makes in the fact that Jesus became like us? He really did. It wasn't a show. It wasn't an act. It was real. And because of that, he can identify with us. Because of that, he could die. Because of that, he could become a high priest. And because of that, we can boldly approach someone that we believe and trust and know will not cast us away with disgust, but rather love us, sympathize with us, welcome us, and say, I know it's hard. I know it's tough. I know it hurts. Let me, let me, let me be your savior. Let me be your priest. Let me be your king. Let me be your prophet. Come to me, all you who are weak, and weary, and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, he says. And all that because he became like us so that we one day could become like him. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. We're going to sing one last song. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord God, we are in awe of what you've accomplished and what you worked through the willingness of your son to take on flesh and to become like us. Lord, it's our desire now to become more like you. We know that is your desire for us as well. So Lord, let us love you more. Let us know you more. Let us live for you and obey you more. For our great and everlasting joy and for your glory. Lord, we pray this. And we marvel at the deep, deep love of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Please stand for our final song.